Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to another episode of Post-Progressive Inquiries, a podcast co-production of the Institute for Cultural Evolution and the Daily Evolver podcast. My guest today is Charles M. Johnson, MD, a psychiatrist who is often described as a cultural psychiatrist as he is dedicated to the healthy growing up of the human species. And that kind of thing, Charles, is catnip to me and my listeners, I gotta tell you. The titles are just so, such a bullseye. The first one is your magnum opus, which is creative systems theory, a comprehensive theory of purpose, change, and interrelationship in human systems, parentheses, with particular pertinence to understanding the times we live in and the tasks ahead for the species. That's pretty good, okay? And then the shorter book, which is sort of maybe popularized version of this and focused on a major upstream issue in our culture, which is polarization, is titled Perspective and Guidance for a Time of Deep Discord, Why We See Such Extreme Social and Political Polarization and What We Can Do About It. And both these books are available now, right, Charles? Yeah. Yeah, on Amazon and so forth. So, well, welcome. It's really good to have you with us. Good to talk again. Yeah. So I guess we should start with um, you giving us a brief intro and maybe overview of your thesis here. Right. Well, let me just step back a little bit. I, I, I chuckle a little bit in that, in that um, you know, I mean, we've had a trying year for everyone with uh, with the pandemic at all, and I, I kind of laugh at it. I mean, I look back on, and people ask me, well, what did you do during your pandemic year? It, you know, it's like, I basically, when the pandemic started, I said, I'm not gonna be able to do three-fourths of what I usually do. What can I do? Well, I'm gonna dive in for some really deep dive writing. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I have a general practice in my life that during the winter months, I set everything else aside and I write. That's what has allowed me to write books through the course mm -hmm. of my life. And I was just surfacing from that in February of last year when the pandemic hit and it was like, okay, Dive Full speed in. ahead <laughs> on the deep dive. <laughs> we're going to go, we're just going to go right back in again. And so I had been working on the big creative systems theory book, which is, I mean, it's 650 pages. It's a, it's a monster um, for three or four years before that in winter times. And so that was where I first dove back in and, and great to finish that book because it really is um, a compilation of, um, you know, nearly 50 years of theoretical inquiry and uh, 25 years of directing the Institute for Creative Development in which we were um, applying creative systems principles to leadership and critical cultural issues. And this in a sense brings all of that together uh, and it's sort, of, it's sort of part compilation, it's, it's part memoir in terms of how ideas have developed over time and changed me over time and that back and forth that any creative process does. And, uh, and also an attempt to push the ideas of creative systems theory just as far out as I was able to, able to do it. Yeah, and right so 
Um, so, you know, I feel grateful to have it done and a little relieved to have that piece. Yeah. Well, it's quite an achievement. And it's interesting that you're, you know, the Venn diagram of what you do in integral theory is highly overlapped. And you're doing this on your own. You've been doing this. And well, with your Institute for Cultural uh, Creative Development. Um, but I hadn't heard of you, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not um, really up on necessarily the current philosophers because I don't find them that interesting when I do. <laughs> and so Steve McIntosh said, this guy's really great and we should pay attention to him. And so here we are. And so what I want to ask you is just what, what do you bring into the party here, Charles? Right. Right. Well, let's, let's start from, I mean, obviously in talking about creative systems theory, we're talking about a huge body of work and we're having a brief conversation. Right. But I think the starting place would be, you know, the question that really is the, is the foundation with creative systems theory is, is, is really how do we best understand what most fundamentally makes us human? And, you know, and what creative systems theory suggests is it's the audacity of our meaning making, tool making, for lack of a better word, creative capacities as human beings. And, uh, and it examines how, when we really look deeply at the workings of human intelligence, intelligence is structured to support those capacities, okay? Now, notice what that does is there's a fundamental leap that happens with that observation. It's not a small observation in terms of the history of ideas, okay? Because, uh, you know, because our previous sort of fundamental organizing image in different manifestations during the modern age was that we were, um, was, it defined who we were in terms of rationality, in terms of, um, you know, the universe is a great machine, to put it in, in Cartesian terms, you know. And, uh, and creative systems theory says, no, that's, that was a nice piece for that slice in the history and the story of humanity. But we need deeper, more complex ways of understanding going forward that, that more fully uh, grasp our complexity as human beings. One thing I've grasped is the complexity of human intelligence because rationality is only one small part of human intelligence. And, uh, and creative system theory says that we're, we're at an interesting transitional time in the evolution of the human narrative. And we're really fundamentally needing a new kind of story. We're in a kind of transitional time, a kind of crisis of purpose. And, and a key concept within creative systems theory is the concept of cultural maturity, which is simply some language for talking about the, 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 kind, the kinds of perspectives we're going to need to be able to hold in order to fully understand our time and to have the capacities available to us that we need to make good choices going forward as a species. And we can understand we can understand cultural maturity in a certain way, most simply as, um, as you know, we've, we've really related to culture and our cultural realities as kind of like a parent historically. 
And that's been very, very important to us. I mean, all the way from the times of God kings when culture was seen as divine voice to, um, you know, we still mythologized our leaders in times past, and we've had my country right and wrong during the modern age. And I would say all of that has served us in very important ways, because it's reduced the uncertainty and complexity of life and given us a kind of sense of identity and all of that. But there's a kind of growing up our task is about in which we're having to take a more conscious kind of responsibility in the truths that we use, okay? And that first step is often talked about in sort of postmodern terms. And I would say, well, that's part of it. But cultural maturity says, no, that's only one part of it. Okay, it's also the case that any stage in the evolution of understanding and creative systems theory maps out stages in the evolution of understanding from our tribal beginning, you know, those big picture long term stuff. Um, each is organized differently cognitively. So it's not like over time we've just thought different things, we've thought in different ways. Okay, and so the, the concept with cultural maturity is that we are being challenged to think in a new kind of way, which it calls, for lack of a better term, it's a complicated term, but it's so descriptive, I use it anyway, uh, which is integrated meta-perspective. It's like we're needing to be able to step up above intelligence as a whole, including our rationality, so we can critique our rationality, okay, and be able to hold the whole of our human complexity when we're making choices, okay, and that's what's needed Okay, and I often use it as a metaphor. It's like we have to be able to hold the whole box of crayons. And you can think of that whole box of crayons in terms of just the whole of who we are so that we're not projecting parts of ourselves. Like historically, we've needed to have a world of chosen people and evil, evil others in some way on the global stage or in politics in order to feel a sense of identity. Okay, so part of cultural maturity and integrated meta perspective is keeping the those projections at home and be able to hold the whole of who we, we are. But of, but of huge importance with creative systems theory as it plays out is it delineates different kinds of patterns and understanding is that we're also being challenged to really understand intelligence much more complexly, all the different aspects of intelligence, not just, you know, not just rationality, but our body intelligence, our imaginations, our emotional intelligence, and how they all work together. So creative systems theory, for example, has, has a variety of different kinds of patterning concepts in it. One of them is it just calls patterning in time, which is developmental notions. And what it what it what it maps out is that we can understand different stages in human development, in, in individual psychological development, in any kind of creative process, in the in the development of a relationship, or in the evolution of culture up to this point. Okay, in terms of different, in terms of a predictable, sequ predictable sequence of kinds of cognitive organization which utilize different ones of the multiple intelligences in different ways. Okay, yeah. so, and it just says, okay, that's how things play out. And, you know, we could take time and look at those parallels if you want to. Yeah. Anyway, there's that. But it also has patterning and space concepts that, are, for example, that have us understand 
relationships between different systems in more creative ways. So that can help us rethink leadership. It can help us think in terms of the evolution of love and what love's demanding in our time. Um, you know, and it, it also includes a very sophisticated framework for understanding personality styles, um, which um, the creative systems personality typology, which again is saying, oh boy, much more than we recognize. We haven't had the cognitive capacity to recognize it. We, by virtue of temperament, see the world in profoundly different ways, much, yeah. much more differently right. than most people realize. Yeah. And so that's another yeah. piece of it. So creative systems theory is a, is a framework. A simple way to put it is that our times are challenging us to think in culture mature ways, to bring that kind of integrative meta perspective that all crayons, all the crayons in the box way of seeing the world um, to questions of all sorts. And creative systems theory is, is a very sophisticated, highly delineated framework for looking at the world and looking at oneself in culture mature terms. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating and very exciting. And it seems very aligned with integral theory as we presented over here in the integral scene, um, where, um, you know, we're looking at, at least in the developed world, three major worldviews that are vying for, you know, supremacy in a certain way. One being the traditional worldview, which is more God and country and more spiritual. You know, the world's enchanted at that stage. And there's stages before that, too, tribal and warrior and so forth. But the, the big ones are that, the God and country, social conservatives, it's just a, it's, its own way of thinking. And then secular modernity and with rationality and human rights and, you know, that sort of thing. And then the sensitivity of post-modernity, where we get into interiors and psychotherapy and multiculturalism and uh, world centrism around culture, climate change and that sort of thing, and, and really want to, in some ways, right the wrongs of history. Um, and that integral is next, and that integral consciousness and, inter and an integral culture that would come out of that is lots of things, but... One thing it is, is a culture where all of these previous worldviews are lit up and allowed to be and allowed to be expressed. Um, and we feel them within our own psyches. Yep. And so I want to ask you, so if we think of the difference between a religious and a secular worldview is huge. The worldview between, you know, a mechanistic, if scientistic rationality, a hard sort of rationality, and the sensitivity and multiculturalism of postmodernity is huge. So this next one's going to be huge too. You know, so um, what's, what's that look like? I mean, you're a psychiatrist, you've seen the mechanisms of the mind and the culture, and how do you see it? Yeah. Um, I mean, and first of all, is that assessment or did, is there anything I said about the sort of an integral interpretation of what you're doing that sticks in your craw? Um, not particularly. I mean, we can spend a lot of time going into nuance and detail and there's places that people get caught in there that 
end up being sort of self-affirming to their own temperament that kind of missed the bigger picture and the challenge of it. But I think mm -hmm. certainly what you said in terms of um, the ability to, I mean, I think your phrase was light up all the, those previous realities and their validity. One of the things that's a, um, that most people don't recognize that's an, that's an inherent part of any developmental process is that we, is that we have amnesias for the states that we move beyond, okay? And it's necessary for development. I mean, it's, it's necessary so that we don't fall back into the easy realities of where we've come from. Totally. So it's, it's sort of funny to talk to adolescents about, about, about childhood, and they don't even remember it. They, they can't make sense of it. They think kids are just kind of stupid. You know? <laughs> and, and, but then you talk to young adults about adolescence, and it's like, it's, it's not only that it seems stupid, it really doesn't, they can't grok it. it, does, it no, it's, there, there's a door that's closed, okay? And, um, and then one of the dynamics that most defines second half of life developmental processes is the process of anamnesis. It's like those amnesias begin to fall away and we begin to have appreciation for those earlier realities. Appreciation both for their partialities and their gifts. Um, and um, you know, and we might experience that first with the notion, with the recognition that as we get a bit older, we start remembering early th earlier things in our life. But it's more profound than that. What we're really engaging is what we're really reengaging is those under underlying sensibilities, and it's those underlying sensibilities that. Um, you know, are what it's that integrated process of those underlying sensibilities is what allows us to become not just old, but in potential wise as we become <laughs> older. I mean, a lot of people don't become wiser as they get older. A lot of right. people become more rigid and stuck in their ways. But when people actually take on the developmental tasks of the second half of life, which is not something that psychology has written about that much, but certain people really have. You know, it's a very, you know, that, that's, that, that's an integrated process. And in terms of your question about what's cultural maturity asking, it's an analogous, analogous kind of newly conscious integrative process that can allow the kind of, we could say, more systemic understanding, more complete kind of understanding. We could also say more wise understanding yeah. that's needed as we go forward and uh and 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 courage systems theory says um that's going to be really critical i mean it really you know i think you can make a really good argument if the concept of cultural maturity or something similar isn't correct it's really hard to be legitimately optimistic about our human future yeah and that's, that's well and there's no about. reason to think it wouldn't continue because the growth is well established. We can see that we've grown, we can see in the individual that you're born and you're growing from a toddler to a child, to a teenager, to a, a young adult. And that is, uh, it seems to me built into the cosmos, that growth thing. Yes, that, but you just said a profound and radically controversial thing. <laughs> okay. 
You don't realize that? you have. I mean, to me, it's obvious. Yeah. To you, it's obvious. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay. But, you know, the two critical recognitions with the concept of cultural maturity, one is that without it, we can't really, without it or something like it, we really can't deal with the important challenges ahead for us as a species. It's, you know, and I think we could go in detail about why every one of the major challenges ahead requires it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing is that because it's a developmental notion, the potential for it, at least the potential, is developmentally built into who we are. Okay, If we had to invent it from whole cloth, I would say we're doomed. We're just not going to work. But it's useful to recognize that evolutionary ideas um, are not only fairly rare, um, they're taboo within academia for the most yep. part. I know. And I would say I would say for a simple reason, actually, that's a, a quite understandable reason. Um, and that is that academia has its roots in modern age thought. And its bottom line is rational material understanding. Okay. Um, and so, for example, um, simple notions like intelligence has multiple aspects, like I put forward before, which seems, as a creative person, it's pretty obvious, you know, uh, or, you know, uh, the, or the culture evolves, um, are, are just, are not, ex are no, not acceptable. No, they're, and, and you're right, they're, they're with, taboo. With, that's right, with rare exceptions. So yeah. I'm, a, I'm very much aware of that when I speak in academic context. It's yeah. like there's a certain, um, there, within a significant portion of academia, there, it's, there's a real acceptance of postmodern thought, which in a certain way involves a critique of rationality. Yes. Okay. But it doesn't allow us to move beyond simply that critique. Right. So in the process, we end up with our current really quite crazy situation in which we in which within a postmodern world it's sort of everybody gets their own truth and it's different strokes for different folks and you end up in that critical crisis of purpose we're in right now because there's because there's there's no guidance it's like we're you know we're just adrift and yeah. and and people feel that so academia is is stuck in a place where it can provide much less guidance for young people then 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 you know then it really needs to it's not being the trusted agent that we would like it to be right now in part because just out of it's not i mean it's just out of its history of how it's framed the nature of intelligence and the nature of truth it has a very it has a particularly hard time with that next step that requires us um uh, to hold our experience in, in more complete ways. Yeah. That's changing to some degree. I mean, there's, there's um, um, all kinds of, you know, I mean, topics that used to be totally taboo that are you know, increasingly okay to talk about. And Can you think of a couple? Oh, uh, creativity is one. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, religion, spirituality, you can talk about more. You can talk more about gender. Um, um, I remember part of what 
uh, you know, sort of got me started in the development of creative systems theory. I think we talked before. I was I, I, I was originally a sculptor and a musician, and fascinated with creative process. And I assumed that when I went to college, that I was actually planning to have put together my own minor in creative process, and and uh, um, and because I assumed academia written all kinds of things about creative process and I wanted to learn everything that is and I went around and talked to the to the people I most respected at the university and they said you know academia has almost nothing to say about creativity so yeah. you're kind of on your own yeah. don't waste yeah. your time putting together yeah um, well and the idea of growth and, and but notice that you can't understand creative process without understanding developmental dynamics, without understanding multiple intelligences, you know, without being able to step into a reality that has more uncertainty, more complexity, more nuance, um, more contingencies of relativities yeah. than, than is, than is a, a territory we're used to being in. So if, for me, then it was like, okay, so I'm gonna have to figure out how to map some of that and we're, if we're going to map it, we need totally different mapping tools because the rational mechanistic graph, uh, you know, mapping tools we have don't work. The re religious spiritual mapping tools we've had are right. not sufficient. Neither is sufficient. As a matter of fact, I'm going to have to be able to find ways to think that are encompassing enough that I can hold the scientific and the spiritual simultaneously without okay. conflict, which creative systems theory very comfortably does. Yeah. And well, that's the... Um you know, I think of it as you were talking about how as we get, as we bring on maturity in our individual being, we, you used a word that I think is something like the opposite of amnesia, where Anam you, anamnesia, <laughs> anamnesia. Okay. anamnesia, yeah, yeah, where you be, begin to remember and, and bring back and re-inhabit in a way, right? right? These earlier stages and ways of seeing the world. That's and I, is that right so far? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, and it's not in any sense of going back. It's just that you no, it's are a bringing forward in the aspects of intelligence that are able to appreciate yeah. those earlier times. Yeah. So then as a culture, mm -hmm. as we mature, we're doing some cultural version of that same thing. That's exactly right. right. That's exactly right. That's yeah. Exactly. And so uh, let's then turn a little bit and focus on the, the political polarization, which I know you have really thought uh, deeply about. And, um, and, you know, how would you look at that with this developmental view of, anim what is it, amnesia? Anamnesia. Anamnesia, okay. <laughs> yeah, got it. Um, well, I, I wrote the Discord book, um, Perspective and Guidance for Time of Discord, just out of, um, I just found myself deeply concerned during the year that, um, you know, I mean, it's like every issue is becoming polarized so rapidly. I mean, when the when the um, when the pandemic started, I had several colleagues contact me and said, "Okay, we've got a virus. It's just a virus. I'm sure we're going to polarize around it. How in the world? I, I can't even imagine how we polarize about it. You know, and, and so I said, <laughs> all I said is, well, I know we'll do it." eventually and quicker than you might imagine, but would I ever have been able to predict that we do it around masks? 
essentially we are polarizing around everything. Yeah. And, and much of the point with the book is it's not, it's not an issue. Uh, it has to do not with what we think, but how we think. Okay. Such that any perception by the nature of how we're thinking, we're coming at situations from different kinds of cognitive organization. And because of that, they immediately polarize. Okay. Um, and that's a real problem. It's a huge problem. I mean, obviously at the level of just neighbors not getting along with neighbors, but, uh, you know, it's not consistent with the, uh, uh, you know, with the, uh, with the, it's not of the survival of democratic representative government. I mean, we, we basically have government that's not able to, that's in gridlock. We can't make any decisions because of the degree of polarization. And I would say of ultimately even greater significance than that is that we're left unable to effectively deal with and grasp any of the critical questions ahead for us as a species because those questions require culturally mature perspective. And when we're polarized, we're not capable of culturally mature perspective. When we're polarized, ideology, you know, a simple definition within the image for, for ideology is it's what we get when we identify with a single crayon in the box instead of being able to hold the whole box. Yeah. And right now we're having opposing crayons. And the task isn't, you might think that the task is to better get along or compromise or meet the other person halfway, but actually the task is bigger than that, which is part of what makes it fascinating and challenging and much of what the book is about. Because, you know, to use the, to use the box of crayons image to compromise or to meet halfway is like two crayons talking to each other. Okay. Well, that you just end up with muddy brown with that. that <laughs> get you there. Okay? Yeah. It's the ability to hold the whole box that makes the difference. And if we put it in developmental terms, okay, I would say that wasn't the case 50 years ago. It's like for the entirety of the modern age, okay, the, the generation of a particular kind of polarity, okay, and people splitting in it, and then debating and finding compromise, that's, the ability to do that is what's allowed democratic governance to exist, okay? So like creative systems theory can map out how every stage in the evolution of culture is organized in, in terms of a different kind of polar relationship. Okay, and there's a specific kind of polar relationship that define modern age thought. And, and you end up with like objective and subjective or mind and body as reflections of that or within the political sphere left and right as we commonly think about it. Okay, but in order to bring culturally mature perspective to questions, that no longer holds up. So at the beginning of the book, I, I just put forward sort of an architecture for the book. I said, with any issue we look at, we'll come at the similar way. It's like in the old story, when an issue became polarized, the task was to figure out which pole was right, and then either fight for it, maybe to the death, <laughs> uh, or at least to find compromise with the other half. Okay. Yep. Once you move into cultural mature territory, the task and the perception is very, very different. 
um, you assume that what you're hearing is left and right hands of a larger polar relationship that has not been perceived before and which we have not been capable of perceiving before. You can also assume that the really hard, important question that needs to be looked at has not yet been identified by either the left or the right. And that you need to start by being willing to look head on, directly confront that larger question that, that has to be articulated and understood systemically in order to even to be grasped as a question. Halt. <laughs> that, that, that is great. And I, I want to actually underline it because what I'm always trying to do here with the Daily Evolver and with post-progressive insights and all of it, what we're doing here is, you know, what's it look like? You know, what's this next stage look like? What does cultural maturity look like? We would say, what does integral consciousness look like? Um, And I love what you said, and I want to underline it. One is, and this is something I'm seeing arising in the intelligentsia and, and in the culture at large to some degree, and it's still small, but I'm seeing it grow. And that is when you hear anything, you realize that that's one perspective, that if, if we simplify polarization into the left and right, you're not satisfied until you've deeply drank from both the perspectives of the left and the right, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and you have to identify what news you're getting and where it's coming from. And, and, and there's an impulse and an imperative to fill out the field and to know what you're doing. And, and as you just said, that's new. Yes, it, that is new, and there's an additional step, okay? And that's the identifying the problem that neither of them can identify in the confines of their own worldviews. That's right. So yeah. For example, so the best of thinkers who are able to say, you know, there's something to learn from both sides, okay? Very, very rarely did you get the next recognition, which is we can't then add the best of each side together and get where we need to go. Yeah, right. And put them in a blender. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Right. I love what you say about the crayons. I remember as a kid, I would put the yellow and the green and the red, and it was pretty for a while. (laughs) There's a big brown knob. Exactly. And yeah. that's, that's something that, I mean, see, that requires integrated meta's perspective to grasp, okay? It becomes obvious from there, but um, uh, creative systems theory has some very specific terms for that. It calls it a compromise fallacy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, I mean, I'm blessed. I feel blessed whenever I hear somebody simply not taking sides. I'm being able yeah. to... Uh, yeah. acknowledge that there must be a there must be a little bit of truth from both sides yes. but to get beyond the compromise fallacy and to say okay what's the larger question that not only is critical and important for us to look at but in fact possibly we couldn't have tolerated prior to now exactly you know it's it's not like it's not like there's it's not like anything's broken it's like we're being challenged to a next chapter that's a hugely important chapter, which has huge rewards potentially, okay? I'm not certain we're gonna get there. It demands so much of it. Like, you know, 
the potential is there developmentally, but possibility is not destiny. And we're at a time right now where, um, you know, where we're regressing. Over the last 20 years, we've gone backwards significantly around cultural mature capacities. And I mean, the level of polarization we're seeing now, uh, we have not seen before. Yeah. Well, in a similar way, and it's globally, it's not just political right. polarization here. It's, you know, it's seeing uh, authoritarian regimes replacing fledgling democracies around yeah. the planet. And so we're in, a, we're in an awkward in-between place. And creative yeah. theory has a phrase for some of that, too. And a lot of what we're experiencing right now, it talks in terms of transitional absurdity. It's like <laughs> systems get overwhelmed beyond what they can handle when they, when they get beyond, beyond what they can handle. They polarize and then you regress. And, you know, hopefully that's a two-step forward, one-step back thing. But, um, you know, we... I interpret it a little differently. I just, I do see the, the, absolutely the polarization is greater. I'm not sure that's not a a function of the development itself, where the the perspectives or the worldviews have to be completely laid out on the field. And um, fully, the whole field has to be populated with the nuts and the extremists and this one and that one. And then when we get the whole thing, we have more that we can work with to integrate into the next stage. And so that's a a little bit of a positive spin on it. But, you know, I'm good with regression. Most people, even in the I I actually, I would say, you know, it, it's, it's a great it's a great conversation i mean yeah. i actually i i start out the uh, perspective and guidance book by saying one of the most important questions is why are we seeing the degree of political and social polarization we are and i also say i don't have a complete answer for yeah. it yeah i think it's the the, you, the brown blob wants to you know become differentiated so that we can see all the crazy colors right uh, Maybe. Well, I, yeah, maybe. And that's, and yeah, and I, I think there's multiple ways of thinking about it. But I think, I mean, a simple way is just it's a, the two step forward, one step yeah. back nature of change. And, totally. it is, and so it's no big deal. Yeah. Um, I think another, uh, uh, you know, I th- I'm quite confident that a major portion of it is the degree to which we're we're facing challenges on the planet that are really just overwhelming us, you know, from globalization to certain technological kinds of things. And quite honestly, one of the major things is some of the things that come with cultural mature change, driving some of that, pushing the system beyond what it can handle. You know, we're losing some of the handholds that we've traditionally had to divine ourselves and define truth and define the relationships. And that's pretty overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I would agree with framed somewhat differently. I, you know, to creative systems theory would predict that we'd be having a hard time right now. Yeah. Okay. For somewhat different reasons, but mostly because of that overwhelm that is inherently there. So the interesting question becomes, for me, in the at the cause at the terms of how to understand the cause of what we're seeing right now, is is if cultural maturity related changes are a major portion of the driver of what's pushing us beyond what we can handle, then interestingly, what's causing the discomfort 
has the cure built into it. Oh, cool. So in a sense, one pushes. So you end up with a pretty different, similar place to what you got to with a somewhat different explanation. But yeah. so it's like, okay, can we have the courage to move forward in the midst of all the craziness? And, you know, if in fact, some of the ways we're playing with framing things hold up, uh, the persistence should pay off. Yeah. Well, well let's take a look, Charles, because I know you do this, at um, these actual issues that we're facing. And you, you talk about, in fact, I think you wrote a book called Quick and Dirty Answers to the Biggest Questions of Our Time. <laughs> War and Peace, Climate, Healthcare, Immigration, Abortion, Race, Science and Faith. Um, progress itself is, you know, that progress is taboo, you know, in most academic circles. Um, so um, how would you pick one of those, like immigration or... Um, you, 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 pick one. you pick one. Uh, well, let's do the one that's uh, most in the news these days and most up in the culture, I think, and that is uh, race. Okay. Um... That may be immigration one. fits into that, of course. But okay, well, let's do immigration first, and then let's okay. move to race, just because there's there's ways in which immigration is a bit easier. Okay, but one of the things is that you know, in terms of, I mean, you, uh, along with a few other ones like um, healthcare and abortion, you sort of touched on the topics that are the chapters in the Discord book, you know, and and. One of the interesting things with um, with each of the topics is that sort of each one's interesting in and of itself, but each one has a particular lesson to teach, okay, in terms of the challenge of cultural mature perspective. So let me do the immigration one first, just because uh, it, um, it it has a kind of easy lesson. And, and that is... Um, um, Cultural maturity requires one to be very aware of the contextual relativity of truth. And most of our ideas about truth are absolutist truths of one sort or another, okay? So um, uh, immigration, I, I start the immigration chapter with a fascinating conversation I had with one of my, you know, with a close colleague who uh, lives in London. And we were talking about immigration. I'd not given the question a great deal of uh, attention. And, uh, but he was in the middle of Brexit and was getting, and was getting real major critique from his colleagues because um, he was a pro-Brexit guy. And he said part of it is just because uh, it just feels like we're being overwhelmed by immigrants. And, and a lot of them really don't have any respect for the history of the city that they're in. And that's uh, a lot of it. I don't, and he's a psychiatrist and a, a good guy. And he said, yeah. Hey, that's, that's not real. I'm not real happy with that. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm, I come from Washington state where immigration has been almost entirely a positive force. You know, we wouldn't have an Apple industry. We wouldn't have a high tech industry. I mean, it's totally, so it's like, oh, that's interesting. In those different contexts, the question becomes different. And so what I saw was that really the question of immigration is not, notice if you think about it, you know, the question of, you know, 
the fundamental polarity in any creative system, and we tend to think of polarities as between uh, one position and another. The fundamental polarity in any creative systems is in fact between unity on one side and difference on the other. Okay. So notice with immigration, what do you get? You get difference, build that wall. Okay. Or you get a sort of woke liberal populism on the other side that if you look beneath the surface is really saying we shouldn't have boundaries at all. And I'd say, they're both nuts. Okay. And you know, it's like, oh. You know, and what, so what's a, what's a better fate? What's a better image for thinking about immigration? And, and so my undergraduate training is, is as a biologist. And, you know, there's semi-permeable membranes. Well, guess what? You know, cells are alive because you get the exact right time and place balance between permeabilities of a semi-permeable membrane. If you want to make life-affirming choices for a cell, you look at the membrane, in this case, a national boundary. Okay, and you simply ask, okay, what, what, are the, what are the kinds of permeability we want to be supporting and the kinds of impermeability we want to be supporting? Right. Now, notice that doesn't end the discussion, but it's no longer a polarized discussion. It's not like one's good and the other's bad. It's like, oh, permeability and impermeability are both critical to life, are both part of what's life-affirming. Yeah. We just have to sit down around the table with the whole complexity of people involved yeah. and do our best, take our best shot at defining permeability. Yeah. Okay. So there's the larger question that once you ask it, the permeability image, once you ask it, takes us beyond polarization and has us engaging the right question. Yeah. Okay. So there's one. You know, the, um, we're very much in the midst of the, um, uh, the race, gender, bigotry, identity politics conversation. And I think it's wonderfully rich and complex and more so than most people are even beginning to get a handle on. Okay. And I say this out of somebody, out of the context of somebody who is, I mean, I have through my whole life been involved in those kinds of, you know, questions um, from, um, you know, from consulting in South Africa and, and with Nelson Mandela on changes at that time to earlier in my life uh, uh, helping start a free clinic for Native Americans in Seattle, you know, and, and so uh, and supporting those uh, uh, and certainly supporting women's rights through my life with the Institute and everything. But it's also the case that I think we're in a time where a lot of the discussion's a bit nutty. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and sort of woke left populist sort of things around, and this is, we could take a lot of time talking this, but in related, relation to questions around both gender and race are often hugely simplistic in ways that are not, you know, terribly helpful. Mm -hmm. and with questions that are not that complicated. I mean, like our notions, let's defund the police. And my response is, well, I think we need to revisit police. I've been talking about that for 40 years. And, 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 and there's, you know, and that includes, um, you know, and, and, you know, it just, at the simplest level, we're giving the police all kinds of responsibilities 
and obligations that they don't want to have. I mean, they don't want to be dealing with homelessness, with mental health, those kinds of issues. They never asked for that and got thrown onto their plate. And the kind of personality style of person who is likely to be a policeman and will be the best police person, in fact, is one of the least equipped people to deal with that kind of situation. And we're sort of talking about the police as if they're the enemy now it's sort of you know and it's sort of a um it it really comes back to being a kind of anti-authoritarian ideology that people are getting caught in and um so here's the here's the awareness that is pivotal there and it's really it's, it's beyond where people are at right now and beyond and it's an awareness is actually beyond what's helpful at this point i mean sometimes really important recognitions that are true ultimately and helpful, you know, aren't necessarily helpful practically in a situation. So it's not an argument, this is not an argument I would pretend to make around race issues right now, for example, because it doesn't be helpful necessarily. But I divide the tasks when we're coming to identity politics issues into two chapters. I would say issues that have to do with equal opportunity, equal rights, equal safety are 100% goods, okay? And absolutely critical. But those questions don't have a lot to do with cultural maturity. Those are, those are right and appropriate accomplishments for the latter sub-stages of the modern age task, which is the task that started with the Bill of Rights, yep. okay? And it just applies everywhere, and we have to do that, okay? When you start getting into cultural mature territory, then you start looking at the question of how do we hold things in, the, in an adequately complete way, okay? Um, and that means getting beyond projections and holding the whole complexity in oneself. Um, well, obviously, in that context, bigotry falls 100% short. Okay, because any kind of bigotry, what you're in a sense doing is allowing yourself to feel superior, superior by projecting a denigrated part onto other people. Okay, that's how, that's how it works. But it's also the case that what we're seeing right now in, in sort of, in woke identity politics stuff to an awful, to a significant degree, is really a victim narrative and sort of competing victim narratives, who can feel like the biggest victim. Now, there's an important distinction between accurately identifying victimization and a victim narrative, okay? And it, it is accurate that Native Americans were victimized in the move west. It is accurate that slavery is victimization. But when you hold a victim, that sort of angry victim narrative as a way of self-identification, that stops just as short of cultural mature thought because it's similar is a projection. You know, is you are projecting, you are projecting authority, you're anti-authoritarian in the sense of projecting authority onto other people. The irony in that is that you're giving your authority away. So in the act of feeling empowered by feeling like the victim, in fact, you're undermining your own ability to have authority fully in your own life. It actually gets in the way of solving problems that we need to solve. So I include in the book it's a, 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 a quote by Toni Morrison, which I love, which is, which is essentially, she says, um, 
you know, I make every effort to write without the white man's gaze. You know, think about that. See, it's, it's, it's sort of like right now with identity politics, our gaze is on the perceived oppressor and everything is going to be okay if the oppressor changes their behavior. Yeah. I'd say often there's a piece of truth in that. Yeah. But we're, I think we're at a stage in the evolution of these questions where um, we really need to move more in the cultural mature territory where we're not giving away the gaze uh, and, yeah. um, and the state. So I look, at, I look at a lot of what I see in sort of woke um, identity politics right now as sort of insights that were useful, creative, and appropriate for 50 and 60 years ago um, in terms of the liberation movements of the 60s and 70s. Uh, but they're not sufficiently sophisticated for what can actually make meaningful change in our time. I'm assuming that most of what we're seeing in our time will, in fact, have ultimately positive effects. Yeah, it's just um, well, I do too. I mean, it, if you... it, it's sort of it just um, it it's just it's just not framed as as large as it ultimately needs to be. Yeah, all. yeah. I mean, I think uh, to me, part of what a culturally mature view would be would be a acceptance and even friendliness to the fight itself uh, that is going on because there is in some ways that's how we move forward it's how certainly how evolution moves forward in nature is through you know struggle it also moves forward through friending and you know uh, I always love the the term homo puppy that human beings are like puppies. We are just so damn friendly that that is also a big part of the evolutionary force, but so is struggle. And, um, and that that gets us, it's like for me, the Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement, both of them have raised my consciousness. And I thought I had a pretty darn highly raised consciousness. But what has happened through these, and, and yes, I agree that the, if you believe them absolutistically, you know, then, you know, you're, this, that's not cultural maturity. But to drink deeply of these various ideologies um, has me just seeing people more as people. And, um, and I always think of the windshield wiper that is just um, wiping away my conditioned thoughts when I see a woman or a person of another race and that so that I can actually see them and see into them. And that's, that's part of it in terms of the, my interior and my own maturity. And then I think in terms of the culture that we do, you know, it's almost like you were talking about the ultimate polarity being same and difference is that there's a story of America that is a triumphal story. You know, and we, that's the one we, I guarantee you, you learned it in school just the same as I did. <laughs> and manifest destiny was a good thing from sea to shining sea. And, um, uh, and that's, that is a beautiful story. America has a beautiful story. It is. But the new story is of the, uh, of the, uh, the other side of it. You know, the 1619 story, the story of oppression and, you know, who was, uh, you, you know, who got the short end of the stick in various situations. Of you course, know. Of course. Um, Both of those have to be true because they are. 
right right and i'm and i'm and i'm saying something else with that i mean i don't agree with all that okay i think the observation that we're seeing some aggression right now and some significant aggression is important okay and i think it's really dangerous uh so um i'm not okay with just assuming that that regression is fine and just part of you know how things how change how, how things change in a wonderful world it um I, I think it is significant and, and you know, and, 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 you know, as, as I was talking, you know, I, I would, I would differ with you a little bit, but only out of our personal experience in a certain way in terms of, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't feel that I've personally learned much from the Me Too movement or from Black Lives Matter those were conversations we were having 40 years ago at the institute mm -hmm. um, and uh and i'm not saying they aren't valuable and that a lot of people can learn from them um but uh but i think we need to be having some different kinds of conversations in both spheres to really get to where we need to go um around the me too movement kind of stuff you know one of one of my uh, one of my books is specifically on issues of gender and sexuality and such as that. And so mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I, you know, I try to paint a larger picture in terms of how do we think about notions of gender and what it means for people to relate to each other. And, but it's also the case that those are, if it's either of those, you know, um, is that we're talking about kinds of perceptions that are you know that are out 20 30 maybe 50 years sometimes yeah. about where most people are comfortable with holding questions so i'm not saying this is how people should look at things what i'm suggesting is that um eventually these issues need to be held more systemically if we're going to make really meaningful progress going forward so i'm trying to do my best to map what that looks like mm -hmm. um and, and maybe tell yeah. us a little bit more of but, but well, I, fill I, in that map a bit if you would yeah but I, but I do you know so so in that sort of the question so that there's a dual question of you know if we are if we are regressing a bit what how do we make sense of that and like i said maybe it doesn't matter at all I mean, maybe it's just a little two steps forward, one step back. Maybe it's just part of the messiness of change. Okay, um, you know, maybe it's a little bit of how we're being overwhelmed, but it's a matter of just moving through it. But um, but clearly, I was concerned enough about it to write a whole book about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In terms of the in terms of the issue of discord in our time, um, and what did that one of the interesting so i'm going to your second question but what does that look like more long term and you know you can ask in terms of specific questions but i one of the interesting um one of the interesting realities uh, insights about the concept of cultural maturity and integrated meta perspective just the ability to see more systemically about things is 
and, and it's it's one that's I'm fascinated when ins that I that are sort of obvious and I actually said 20 years ago and I'm only now sort of finally figuring them out that they what they really mean you know but it's one of the ones that I found most provocative to myself lately is that it's not just it's not just that more mature perspective and more systemic understanding defines the task of our time right now and how we need to think. Um, it's not just that there's some real dangers if we can't pull it off and sooner rather than later. Um, it's also the case that um, the basic reorientation in terms of stages of culture that we're talking about with integrative meta perspective is really the basic kind of rethinking of thought we need going forward way into the future. We could arguably say for the whole of the future of humanity. I mean, plenty of things will change. We'll have, you know, we'll have new inventions of all sorts. But the question becomes, how do we bring the necessary wisdom to managing those new inventions and that's a question of how we hold reality it's also the case that certainly our ability to think uh in more complete ways will you know will refine will bring nuance and refinement and detail to that over time such that we can be wise in much more subtle ways if we if we if we move forward 100 years from now but that the basic cognitive difference, the basic difference in terms of how we're needing to hold things that we're being challenged to right now is really, we're really talking about, um, you know, the, the whole rest of the story in a certain way. It's like, it's, it's sort of like we were, we were making the analogy to, uh, you know, to midlife and individual development, the two halves of individual development. It's like the re you really can think of individual development in terms of two halves. There's certain kinds of developmental stories that make up the first uh, half of life. And then there's the second half of life. And it also has its chapters, but, but there's a fundamental shift that defines the difference between first half of life and second half of life developmental stories. And um, so uh, I think a way of thinking about the task of our time is we're trying to figure out how to do that second half story, mm -hmm. which is the second half story, which allows us to be wise and sustainable and nuanced in our choices that is, full, is fully able to tolerate and find meaning in the complexities of our differences and uh, and and the nuances and the complexities yeah. of the questions that we're confronting. Hallelujah! I I like that the the finding meaning in the complexities of our differences. That's that's good. Um, how do you think we're doing, Charles? I mean, you see anything that's hopeful? Any cool people or public intellectuals or? Um. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, one thing I often say is that I'm, you know, I'm not an optimist or a pessimist. Uh, the the pieces that I think are important is that um, 
in terms of what my contribution has been with the Institute as such is, is to me, there's clearly a way forward, okay? And it's a way forward that in potentially is built into who we are. And that multiple steps in terms of that have been made throughout the last century. We can, you know, go through, I mean, from some of the thinking in the, in the early decades of the last century were important contributions to culture and truth as I see that. Um, and right now we're at an odd time, like, you know, and an awkward in between time in a lot of ways. Um, I, I, you know, I think in a lot of fields we've gone backwards in the last 20 years. Um, but there's other fields in which we've made important progress in the last 20 years as well, which is sort of interesting to watch that happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we talk, uh, I think it's interesting. I mean, people will often ask me, you know, you know what percentage of the population do you see uh, capable of some significant degree of cultural mature thought at this point? And I, I think um, my answer is a, a little bit can seem backwards because we tend to look to identified leaders and thought leaders and political leaders when we ask that kind of question. And I would say for the most part, political leaders and thought leaders can be in those positions because they have a pretty large mass of followers. And there is not a mass of followers, of culture mature followers. So the result is that we also don't get cultural mature leaders to a significant degree. So Mm -hmm. it's the wrong place to look, okay? So I would say within average populations of people, the percentage is higher than you might imagine. It, you know, I you what know, five ten? I, I say between five and ten percent. Yeah. With you know, within uh, within average population, there are wonderful exceptions in terms of leaders who have really been ahead of their time. Um, you know, I mentioned Nelson Mandela. I think Barack Obama is that way in terms of political leaders, who uh, you know, who you know, both I identified early on that they were bringing cultural mature capacities, and I was incredibly impressed during their times of leadership in terms of the degree they actually yeah me too that. you know and we've got and there's a, a few people in uh um in the media i think um uh david brooks often succeeds tom friedman often succeeds i don't think they have a conceptual framework to understand kind of why they're reaching some of the conclusions they're reaching but on the other hand um, I will, you know, I th- one of the one of the litmus tests for me is is simply that I read their work. I mean, it's it, it's, it's interesting that, enough. Uh, it, yeah, it's a, that I, I'm. I think it's possible that something that might surprise me will show up. The great majority of commentators, and unfortunately, right now, it's the case not just with media on the right, which is totally predictable but media on the left from you know NPR to the New York Times is just as predictable right you know, no, on true. the left i will frequently go how in the yeah. hell did that get yeah. published i mean not only not the conclusion but how did it even get considered um uh so i think there's uh so i, I think there's a you know i think there's a good percentage in the general population uh and i think our current U.S. president's not doing a bad job. I don't think he's doing it particularly from a cultural mature place, but I think he's doing it from a good centrist, yeah. uh, solid leadership 
place and we should be very grateful for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice change from That's a nice thing before. That's from yeah. what's been before. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Does that fit? How do yeah. you no, that sounds that about how you see things? Too? Yeah. I, you know, in terms of public figures and major public figures, Barack Obama is the gold standard to me of somebody who's operating you know, what I would call integral consciousness. Yeah. and just has a flexibility of mind and the ability to put himself. In fact, I'm reading his book. He's huh? constantly putting himself through the eyes of other people, the people he's dealing with. That's a very conscious process that he is doing. And it's just magnificent to think that he was elected the president of the United States twice. That's right. You know. And I, and I don't think he was, I mean, he was twice and... And I, I mean, clearly he wasn't appreciated from the right, but I don't think he was adequately appreciated from the left. I don't right. think most no. folks on the left understood what they had. Yeah. Well, that's sort of the occupational hazard of cultural maturity is both yeah. sides are going to, you know, think that you're a traitor. <laughs> Have you had that experience? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, my liberal friends think I'm a, you know, a reactionary and my conservative friends think that I'm a snowflake. And I don't know. I'm good with that. I mean, my, my goal, just sort of a little back pocket goal, is to make their case better than they do. And, uh, you know, in many cases, I think I do. Uh, but that's, that's in that itself. I mean, just being friendly and, and inhabiting these different worldviews is it's just so interesting that you, at some point you just want to do it. Yeah. And there's some fruit that is born out of that. Yes. A profound fruit. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Charles. Well, anything else you want to put on the table? It's so fascinating to talk to you. Um, you know, just only that, uh, you know, keep up the good work because, um, you know, I don't think there's, anything more important right now than, you know, the, than voices that can do just what you were just articulating. And, um, you know, whether we look at it as being in a pretty troubled place right now, or whether we look at it in terms of emerging possibilities, that's where the conversation has to be. Absolutely. So, yeah. And uh, so great to talk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Look forward to more. Yeah, likewise. And best to you on these books. Again, I'll, I'll put them up. Creative Systems Theory. This is the magnum opus. Yes. A comprehensive theory of purpose, change, and interrelationship in human systems. And then the shorter book, Topic of Political Polarization, is called Perspective and Guidance for a Time of Deep Discord. Why we see such extreme social and political polarization and what we can do about it. And I can't think of a more of a bullseye than those two books. So thank you so much, Charles M. Johnson, MD. All right. Well, thanks, Charles. Thanks. See you next time. Hey.